This event is presented by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. This event is supported by Houston Tillotson University, United Healthcare, Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas, Doctors Hospital at Renaissance, Texas Way, the Texas Hospital Association, UT Southwestern Medical Center, the Meadows Foundation, and the Hatton W. Sumner's Foundation. Um, we're going to start just, I was hoping all of you would just very briefly give a lay of the land of, you know, what your hospital is like, the type of clientele you serve, and, and the single biggest issue that keeps you up at night when you're thinking about the future of your hospital. I know there are many, but I'm going to ask you to choose one. So go ahead, Dr. Warner. So as uh, Emily said, I'm the, the CEO of our university hospitals at UT Southwestern Medical Center. It's the largest academic medical center in Texas. Um, like all academic medical centers, we have um, three missions, research, uh, clinical care, and education. I run the university hospitals, but our medical center, our medical school, provides physicians for our university hospitals, for Parkland Hospital, the Safety Net Hospital in Dallas, and also Children's Medical Center in Dallas. So that's my role. Um, I run the university hospitals, which is a 610-bed hospital, um, two buildings, uh, two separate hospitals, the Lipsy Hospital and our new Clements University Hospital, which just opened uh, five months ago, uh, and almost to the date, and, uh, which has been an exciting time for us. So what keeps me up at night? I, uh, you know, I think for many of us the, in this era of more transparency around medicine, which is really great for all of us, I think quality is at the forefront of most of our minds, really thinking about ways to get better, because now it's not only something that we're doing internally, it's something that's very externally visible. People are making choices about what types of health systems they're going to choose for their care, and they're looking more and more about the quality of the care they're going to receive from their perspective, not just simply relying on their primary care physician, their neighbor, they're doing a lot of research and thinking hard and asking hard questions about the quality of care they're going to receive. So I spend a lot of time thinking about that, as well as ways to train the next generation of providers which are going to provide that quality care. I guess it's good afternoon here. Um, coming from El Paso, I'm still about an hour behind you. So uh, my name is Sally Deitch, and I am the CEO of Sierra Providence Health Network in El Paso. Uh, if you haven't been to far west Texas, El Paso is about 850,000 people in the county, and uh, my network is made up of three acute care hospitals, plus we are building a fourth acute care hospital that will be a partnership with Texas Tech. Um, it is very interesting when, at least for me, when I look back and think what keeps me up at night was thinking about this panel. No, um, I know, it, I'm, I'm a pretty tough moderator. So. Uh, it actually, for me, it, it is living in a community where a third of our population has zero health care um, coverage, and then another third of the population that is covered by some form of a government payer, and then about a third that have some kind of commercial insurance. So we as hospitals in the community do not only our fair share of providing access, but trying to partner and work together to serve a community that is very underserved. Well, at uh, the Seton Healthcare family, I, uh, which is, uh, includes 11 hospitals, uh, one of which is a psychiatric hospital, I think uh, it, we are really beset by the same challenges that uh, the two previous speakers talked about. What keeps me up at night is the transformation that is happening in the healthcare system in general. And that is hospitals typically used to worry about uh, taking care of people inside the four walls and then discharging a patient 
and thinking that their work was done. And it takes an enormous amount of work on our part in healthcare systems to understand that our work is just beginning when someone leaves our institution. And we've got to connect with primary care providers, specialty care providers, to ensure that that individual gets the continuing care they need so that they can remain well and stay on plan so that they don't get readmitted into our facilities. I can't uh, help but say that uh, even though I was only given one thing to worry about, and I do worry about that, the number of people that continue to be uninsured in the state of Texas is a huge burden for the hospital systems throughout this state. And it's one concern, it's a concern that we continue to have, and we uh, pray every day that at some point uh, that, ra that reason will prevail within the various institutions of our state so that we can find ways to get people the coverage they deserve and that they need so that we can preserve their human dignity. Good morning or afternoon, everyone, again. Uh, my name is Israel, and I'm with Doctors Hospital of Renaissance Health System in the Rio Grande Valley. Our facility is a little bit unique. Uh, we're the largest physician-owned hospital in the United States. Uh, we also are uh, the largest indigent care provider in the Rio Grande Valley. We serve an encatchment area of about 1.4 million. We operate a behavioral hospital, a general acute care hospital, women's hospital, a children's hospital, and a, about 24 other clinics uh, for specialty access points in the Rio Grande Valley. I think I definitely share a lot of the concerns that were brought up by the panel, and I think we each have them. The Rio Grande Valley has a large number of uninsured, and we rely heavily on indigent care and uh, on Medicare and Medicaid. Probably about Medicaid, 50% of our patients by discharge are Medicaid patients. We The next 20, 25% are about Medicare. Uh, private insurance is our large, is, is next, and then indigent care providers are right after that. And so we have a very, about 70 to 80% at any time are Medicaid, Medicare payers. But I think what really is one of the concerns that we've been focused on is a combination of everything you heard all the panelists speak of. The way that compensation is being, or reimbursement is being made for hospitals is quickly changing. And every day there is a new shift in how you have to work. And so I think it's a piece of what you heard everybody talk about. Value-based purchasing, interconnectivity between patients and providers, the continuum of healthcare, and, there's, and there is a, an ever-moving um, motion to make sure that there will be global payments and interconnectivity between payers so that everybody has a piece of that responsibility and how that works in a value-based care environment, how reimbursements will be tied to that, and how healthcare is constantly changing. And you have to be ready now because even though they do impose it in two years, they sort of do a retroactive look at where you were two years ago. And so you're always paying for sins of the past. And if you're not ahead of the game, you will find yourself in a very challenged situation. And that catch-up can really mean the difference between being able to operate your system and having some severe financial challenges. So I think it's sort of a piece of everything, but it's the whole global payments and how fast payments are changing and what that means for our health systems is what's really concerning. Thank you. So for those of us who cover healthcare in the legislature, the hospitals tend to be a pretty influential lobby, pretty aggressive. Do the four of you across the board uh, believe that Texas should have expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act? And if so, why hasn't that message gotten across to state legislators? Well, well, uh, well you know, I, I think uh, the, the record's clear. I think the, the, the position that the association has taken is that we have to find a Texas way to provide coverage. Uh, you may not call it exactly the expansion of Medicaid, but it would be something akin to that. I think those of us in healthcare would prefer people to have coverage, because if you have coverage, you're able then to provide care in a timely way as opposed to the emergency room or some other emergency basis. Uh, 
So I think it's one that we need to get done. And in addition, there's a great deal of federal dollars that we've left on the table. These are hard-earned dollars that the Texans have, have sent to Washington. In fact, is those dollars are now being shared by other states instead of us because we've chosen not to expand Medicaid or the Texas way or whatever the right term might be. Uh, but I think it, it's essential for, to get people coverage because if you get people coverage, people stay well. And when people stay well, that means they work, they stay in school, and our state's the stronger for it. So I think that's our position. You know, I, I think that there, from our perspective in our hospital, and one that relies heavily on Medicaid, there's a few concerns that I think are as pressing as expanding uh, Medicaid. And let me start by saying that we believe that there should definitely be more coverage. And the more coverage you can provide to our patients across Texas, the better healthcare system will be. But one of the issues that I think we can do even before we expand Medicaid, given the conversation where we're at, is really fortifying the rates that hospitals are paid. Today, we have a very complicated reimbursement system that is always at risk in Texas for the Medicaid program. Straight on, on hospital reimbursement, only about 50% of costs, not charges but costs, are reimbursed to hospitals for Medicaid services. So that means if you come in today and you receive a service under the Medicaid program and I spend $100, the rates that we currently have only reimburse me $50. So if you were to expand Medicaid under the current system, you would actually be creating a great instability in the program. I think before we even got to the step of expanding, you have to fix the reimbursement system that we have now. Because when you expand Medicaid, you sort of just increase the system that you have now. And we have some programs on disproportionate share and UC that make up that gap. But that's the gap for the current coverage system today. Those programs won't expand to keep up with the addition of that. And so I think the first step would be really help to fortify the system that we have now, put more money into rates for hospitals, and then look at how we can expand it so that it's a responsible program for Texans. Sure, I'd, I'd certainly agree. All of us as a provider, a physician, as well as an administrator, you know, more coverage is better coverage. Um, it's very difficult to care for patients if they don't have the stability that coverage provides. But I also think it's, it's worth recognizing that for many patients, Medicaid is not enough. And it doesn't really, not only to the hospital systems, but to the patients and their families, doesn't provide the kind of care they actually need. So there needs to be a deeper look at this underinsured and uninsured population for our state to find out what those, those requirements are for them to receive the type of care that they need. And also, I think we, you know, we need flexibility within Texas. Um, the Medicaid population, the underinsured population in Texas is one of the most diverse in the whole country. And the needs of one county are different than the adjacent counties. So it really, I think that's the cry that you heard for flexibility is at the federal level and at the state level that you heard this morning, I think is the right tone. And I, the only other thing I would add is at this point, we can't even have a discussion. And I think that's what as Texas hospitals we're really pushing is, at least let's have the discussion because who in the long run is suffering is, is are the citizens of Texas. And we're looking at rural communities. We're looking at, at major metropolitan areas that can't service um, their own populations or are putting populations at risk because we, we can't even get to a point of having a conversation. So we had news late last month that the Obama administration was sort of seeming like it might play hardball with Texas, basically saying, you know, billions of federal dollars for hospitals could be in jeopardy if Texas doesn't expand Medicaid. They didn't say it outright, but it's basically what they've said to Florida, and Texas is in a similar boat. Uh, the governor, Greg Abbott, has basically responded by accusing the White House of, quote, coercive tactics against the state. Uh, do you all buy this federal threat, and how do you think Texas officials should respond? Well, the, the, 11, the 1115 waiver 
really contemplated a, a reduced reliance of, of a bucket called uncompensated care. That was the bucket that was the under, uh, upper payment limit as well as DISPRO. And that uh, waiver that was submitted that was approved by CMS contemplated us doing innovative programs to provide complete care for people, as, as Dr. Warner talked about, so that people could stay well. And that means a lot of other services beyond just the acute care services. That was the waiver that we signed. That's the waiver the state of Texas entered into. Uh, for Texas uh, to, uh, to then say, well, we need the uncompensated bucket to continue uh, would have to be redoing the waiver. And I'm not sure that that's going to happen or would be reality. So I do think that we have to understand what we did agree to when we did the 1115 and what modifications need to get made to get our payment system in line with what uh, Israel was saying, because I think when we haven't rebased Medicaid rates, that's how we got the uncompensated bucket to be as large as it was, but you need to rebase those rates so that, so that whatever coverage system puts in place gets to work. Uh, but I think um, I'm not so sure that uh, they will need renegotiate that waiver. We've got another 18 months to get that done. And I think that uh, reasonable people around the table will find a way to make sure that we are able to care for Texans in the correct way. I just had one point just to highlight what was said, which is the 1115 waivers has enhanced unprecedented levels of innovation for the care of the underserved. And can you explain what the 1115 waiver is to folks? It's, it sounds like jargon. <laughs> so what the waiver has a piece of, of reimbursing hospitals for uncompensated care, but also has a piece in it that encourages innovative ways to care for the underinsured. And so let me, I'm just, maybe it might be easier to give you an example. Um, then, so for us, we've put a lot of different programs in that are really designed to look at ways to care for a population that's at risk. So one program that we put in place was a program where depression screening could occur in, in clinics serving underserved patients. It's an, I, an iPad app, so it's pretty easy for a primary care physician and a patient to engage around. And we've screened 7,000 or so patients um, with this new app that's just been out just a few months, but have already found, you know, 350 new diagnoses of major depression, 200 patients that, we've, that had existing depression we're caring for. Those are the types of programs we would have had a tough time finding money for um, because they don't necessarily have some reimbursement tied to them, but they allow us to care for an, a, an underserved patient in a different sort of way. And there's hundreds of examples throughout the waiver of these types of innovative approaches to looking at ways to better serve underserved patients' needs. And I think in addition to all of those innovations, we've actually seen in many communities where uh, hospitals were more or less competitors and not having conversations where really the waiver has taken down so many so many barriers and you have communities and, and hospitals or health systems actually having conversations and developing ways that are that are innovative and, and address needs for different populations throughout their communities you know the the only thing I would add and it really is my sincere hope the 1115 waiver does two of the most important things for Texas one, it provides that funding for uncompensated care. So it provides a real avenue for hospitals and, and patients to be able to access care. And so without that, our state would really have some challenges. The other part is they talked about innovation for our facility. It had residency programs, readmission clinics. It expanded specialties. did everything that they had always asked. But I hope that in that conversation, um, you know, the federal government remembers that it's patients that are in the middle and that it wouldn't be used as a tool to sort of get negotiations. I get the frustration on both sides. The federal government says we're going to invest in you, and so you should expand the Medicaid program that we'd like to get insurance. Uh, from our perspective, we're doing the innovations that they want in order to meet the challenges uh, outside of coverage mandates for ACA. And so I think 
the patients are ones who really need this program to be, you know, realigned. And there's sincere hope that they'll find a middle ground without holding the patients hostage in that conversation. Well, speaking of sticks and carrots, um, you know, Medicare in recent years, as, as you all said, has begun using reimbursements to reward and punish hospitals over safety and readmission rates and that type of thing. Um, the latest push is over accidents and hospital-acquired infections. How are your hospitals faring, and are these types of uh, reimbursement systems fair in, in your you know, communities and in your hospitals? You know, I, I think our hospital has taken on the challenge very seriously, and we've done very well, you know, from leapfrog guides that really help you get there to our hospital as a, an A rating facilities and really doing the challenges that are required to make sure that patient safety works there. You know, I think that we are, we believe that everybody wants to practice the very best quality medicine you possibly can, and I think that's really important. But there is a line where there needs to be some discussion between patient responsibility and healthcare responsibility. It's our responsibility as a healthcare provider to make sure you have the absolute best environment to receive your care, that you don't have infections, that we do everything within our four walls to make sure that that care experience is the very best for you, and those should absolutely be the responsible of the care providers. There are some of those um, sort of measures and metrics that sort of extend outside the four walls of the hospital, and we've created programs to bridge that gap. But sometimes you run into issues like patients go to a home environment where they don't have potable water or they don't have uh, proper plumbing or even, you know, they have dirt floors. Those surgical procedures are going to be at a higher rate of infection or they don't have funding to be able to get uh, antibiotics to make sure they don't get a, a readmission. And so when you hold facilities responsible for things that are outside really their control, there really needs to be some kind of discussion on, on the patients that you're looking at. If you've done everything your job and the patient has done everything, that works. But there needs to be a real discussion between patient responsibility and the ability of the patient to be able to have that and what the hospital is held liable for. But I think at the end of the day, absolutely care and quality metrics need to be part of the conversation. You should be rewarded for providing a higher level of care. Anyone else want to jump in? Well, I mean, I'd agree with, with, with what Israel said. Um, I would have one little twist, and I think this is something we've got to learn as healthcare systems, is our responsibility, even though we don't get paid for it, our responsibility doesn't cease when a person gets discharged. And, and by that I mean is you have to know the people that you serve. And so if, if they are in an environmentally challenged area, a lack of water, a lack of sanitation, uh, a lack of nutrition or access to medicines, You've got to figure that out. As a faith-based organization, we've tried to do that through the Community Care Collaborative. We try to do that through some clinics that we've established. That's absolutely essential because, in, in essence, you're exactly right. People will get discharged from a hospital. They end up developing an infection at home, and they come back into the hospital, and you get dinged for it. I do think, though, the focus on quality inside the hospital is absolutely essential. It's fair for us to be held accountable for that and to be able to perform. And I think what the government is trying to say, you're, the healthcare system in the United States is a fragmented system. It's, it's disjointed. And we're asking you guys as healthcare providers to figure out how to bring a seamless healthcare system together. And then we've got to figure out the payment mechanisms for that to make that work, because it's absolutely critical for the people we serve. And realize how many pieces tie into that. So as, as, as both gentlemen were speaking about it, you have rural hospitals that are closing, you have clinics that are closing, that are forcing more and more of the population that is in our rural areas back into urban settings where they may have to drive or travel very long distances. So you, you have this double-edged sword. You have a reimbursement issue that, that's actually driving the reduction of, of care or the capacity 
um, to provide care, then you're putting on top of that. Now you have measurement systems and all of these things that you need to, uh, to do to improve care, which I don't think any of us up here would say nobody has an opportunity to do something better or different or innovative, but realize all the constraints that we're placing, um, that are being placed against us, and then at the same time expecting to come out with a great outcome. And just, you know, one follow to that, I, our facility, absolutely, we get involved. We actually create a new concept called a CareLink clinic that goes out there and treats our patients. But that really is because our facility is of a sufficient size. We're a large health system. We can divert those resources. My real concern on the balance is we also need to make sure that we're maintaining a safety net of care. If you get into those really small facilities where they don't have excess resources and they get caught in a stairwell that's going down and the hospital leads to closure, then you really haven't worked with them to do that. So I think we want to make sure that we wind up with a balance that ensures quality, that ensures that patients have con care continuity programs, but for those rural or hard-based clinics that don't have maybe as much resources as we do or Seton does to implement those innovative programs that we're very proud of, um, you know, it, it gets more challenging. And so while we've been able to reduce the readmissions, it might be harder for a smaller system to do that. Do we have a crisis in rural hospital care in Texas? I mean, I think I saw that there have been 10 closures of rural hospitals in recent years and that revenue is falling dramatically for those that still have their doors open in Texas. You know, are, are you all seeing patients coming in from those communities and how at risk are those communities? They're very at risk. Um, you know, living in El Paso and, and realize, I mean, from El Paso to Dallas, it's about the same distance from El Paso to San Diego, California. So to, to think of the size of Texas, um, we receive many patients that are within, you know, say 200 miles of El Paso and, and looking at their critical access hospitals and the difficulties they're having and then to try and figure out how to transfer the patients. And, you know, we've read uh, newspaper accounts of, of hospitals in, in Northeast Texas that have closed and, you know, actual deaths that have resulted from that where, you know, you have somebody... I mean, I was one article we were reading today, um, a child choking on a grape, and the emergency room's closed, the hospital's closed, and so by the time um, EMS can actually respond and get to that child, you know, the child passed away. So we are running into this difficulty, whereas we have those critical access points, our rural hospitals serve um, critical, critical access issues for the state, and, and we would... Uh, think we would, we would not be faring well if we didn't turn around and look out for those rural facilities. And one of the, uh, the good things in medicine is that most treatments are time dependent now. So the sooner you get it, the better you are, I mean, better you're likely to do. So particularly for patients with as cardiologists, heart attacks, stroke, um, you know, getting to the hospital or to get some sort of medical care in 30 to 60 minutes often may mean the difference between permanent impairment or death. And so having more sites of service throughout the, our state is going to be very important. So it, it is troubling that many of these sites of service are disappearing. I want to talk about a different type of hospital, and those are, that is those affiliated with universities. I saw a Wall Street Journal report last month that some universities around the country are severing their ties to hospitals, basically the argument being that education and healthcare are totally different businesses. Uh, I'm curious where you in particular come down on this, but I'd like to hear where all of you come down on this issue. I'll start that. I'll start that one off. I flinched when I read that article, and uh, still flinch when I see it. You know, I uh, I don't view them at all as as separate businesses. Um, hospitals, academic medical centers in particular, but all of us in some respect are in the business of not only providing care but also providing providers. Um, so that's 
training doctors, nurses, therapists, all the folks who are going to care for all of us in the future. And if you do that, if you do that well and you do that in the right way, it's part of your business. I mean, at UT Southwestern, 57% or so of the providers in the area have received some component of their training um, at UT Southwestern. So we're a resource for our entire community. So to separate the care and the education, and I would add research, by the way, which also improves outcomes and leads to better therapies, divide those into separate business models really, I think, is something that I have a hard time um, sort of accepting. Now, the article made the point that, you know, that for a while hospitals were so successful that they could subsidize these other components of the academic medical centers, and now that hospitals are less profitable, it may be better to run them differently. But certainly at UT Southwestern, we, we believe in that three-part mission. We believe they're intricately linked. We have 1,600 trainees, um, almost 4,700 students and trainees at our institution every single day. And we view that as our, our payback to the community for, uh, to train those providers that are going to take care of the next generation of us. Well, I would agree with that. I mean, we have a, an affiliation agreement with the University of Texas, and before that we had the affiliation agreement with the University of Texas Southwestern. We think that education is a key component for the, the work that we do as a community-based organization that happens to be in healthcare. So it's absolutely essential. I think that, in essence, some of this ties, down, uh, ties back to funding and the ability to fund graduate medical education program at an appropriate level. And again, I think as the, the state of Texas moves into a knowledge-based economy, uh, it is going to be absolutely essential for the public sector to understand the investment it needs to make in higher education and in public education, because those are going to be key components for the success of our state. Those have to get sorted out by the policymakers, but in essence, that's where the state uh, economy is going, and we're going to have to figure out how to get that done. And you're absolutely right. You need to fund it adequately so that we can have enough providers, and in those rural areas that you talked about, ways to be able to ensure that you provide care in those areas, because they're going to be very much needed. And uh, if you continue to just see this as a cost equation, you're going to contract the supply, and when you contract the supply, those areas will suffer. How big of a challenge is behavioral health in your hospital systems? I mean, we hear so much about, you know, folks with mental illness who show up in emergency rooms, who then go to jail, who then come back to emergency rooms. How taxing is this on your hospital systems, and, and what kind of efforts are in place to alleviate some of that challenge? The, uh, here in Travis County, uh, because of what Sally talked about is the DISRIP disrup programs, we were able Can to you say what DISRIP is? Sorry, uh, acronym. The, it's the... Uh, or in English, what it well, means. Well, it is, it is the innovative system that you create as part of the 1115 waiver, so you integrate your health care in a way that's different than being a fragmented system. For, in essence, what we did is we created an emergency psychiatric unit at Brackenridge Hospital that's reduced, has been able to provide care in, an adequate, uh, in a much more adequate way for those people with behavior, behavioral health issues, develop the outpatient setting for, them, for those individuals to get the counseling and the medicines that they need to stay well. The, the crime that we've created as, as local communities is we've created mental health as a, as, a, as a crime. And a lot of those individuals have ended up in our jails uh, because they had inadequate services. And under that innovative program, we're able to provide it in a better way. But even as well as that has done, we need to do a better job when it comes to behavioral health. It's something we don't understand enough about. It's something insurance doesn't reimburse in, uh, nearly enough to be able to provide those services adequate. And I think that that's something that's absolutely essential for us to have for our healthcare systems. There were significant cuts um, in the late 80s, early 90s to behavioral health payments. And we've seen this downward spiral in, in Texas and, and nationally with dealing with uh, behavioral health or psychiatric issues. In El Paso, we were 
I talked about this earlier today, 850,000 people. We have eight psychiatrists in private practice in our city, eight. And so to think about how people access healthcare and access any kind of behavioral health need, it's usually through the police or through the emergency room. And so um, we have had, you know, we have instances every day where patients are under emergency detention order um, through the police department. They're brought to the emergency room. Um, the, the hospitals, we then have to hire people that will come in, basically security guards or somebody to sit with the patient because you can't leave a psychiatric patient alone. So the cost of care just, just become just, you know, it's one stair step after another in trying to care for these patients. And really, is an acute care hospital the appropriate setting for um, a psychiatric patient? The answer is no. But we will do the best we can. And again, it, to your point, it goes back to providing care to the community. You know, the, we operate the largest behavioral hospital in our region. And I think what I would like to see or what would be helpful is it, you know, we talked about the care continuity in general acute care. And you've seen a lot of discussion. The 1115 waiver brought that out. The Affordable Care Act brought it. And the metrics have brought where you really do connect the providers across the continuum of care. That still hasn't been done for behavioral health care. And I think that really stopping for a moment and seeing what we can do to redesign it, because it's in part part of the educational system, it's a part part of our law enforcement, a part of our hospital. We have a lot of challenges with behavioral health care, and, and we're happy to provide them. Reimbursement are sometimes challenges, but also then what happens to the patient throughout the area. It's not a disease that you can cure, like you know, a, even a stroke or a heart attack. They, those have endpoints, and you're able to be able to triage them. Behavioral is sort of a lifetime, a lifetime chronic condition. And if we could create some metrics and some programs that really bridge outpatient therapy, long-term therapy, and general acute care therapy, and how that all works together and create some interconnectedness between those types of therapy regimens or behavioral health, I think that our state would start to move down the right direction. But that's a conversation we definitely need to have on how we can bridge those gaps. Yeah, I just add, you know, the lesion here is outpatient providers. We don't have enough. The fact you'd have eight providers in your cities is, uh, is mind-boggling. But the key to fixing that is really graduate medical education. I was very reassured to hear the chairman this morning speak about, about ways to convince more people to go into these specialties, but also to keep them in Texas. Um, you know, that is the, that's the key to our long-term success is not only training folks, but also giving them the opportunities to practice. Take me as an example. I'm as Texan as they come. I grew up 20 miles east of Lubbock. I went to college in Texas. Um, ended up at Duke for the last stage of my specialty training, and I spent the first three years of my practice in North Carolina and not in Texas. Not because I don't love Texas, but I do. But but there's an incline, there's a inclination for people to just stay where they to stay where they finish their training. So we have to address that in Texas, giving people opportunities not only to get an education, but finish their training and begin their practices here and stay here and provide this kind of care. You know, the only, there's one other thing I would add, um, just as a consideration, is also the amount of military bases we have in Texas, and we have some very large installations. Um, close to some of the largest in the United States. And what we're seeing so much with our active duty that's returning um, is a lot of behavioral health needs. And we're, while the private hospitals can work with the DOD or the VA, um, that is an area that further kind of exacerbates that, uh, that need in, in many, many communities across the state. 
In our remaining minutes here, I want to talk about a couple of issues moving through the legislature this session that relate to health care. The first is around uh, Ebola. Lawmakers basically are, are pushing legislation that they say would sort of give a, a clearer chain of command in cases where we have um, uh, confirmed cases of Ebola like the one we had in North Texas. Do you all believe, going through that as the CEO of a hospital, was there a clear chain of command? Was there a leadership void at the top? Uh, does that system need to be reformed, or is that something that the hospital should, you know, sort of play point on? I guess being in Dallas, I get to go first on this one. <laughs> you know, first let me begin by saying no city, no hospital, no physician, honestly, could have been prepared, I think, for what transpired in Dallas. It's a very difficult circumstance, and, and clearly, in retrospect, we weren't ready as a city and probably as a state. I'll say that since then, beginning with Governor Perry's Task Force on Infectious Disease Prevention, there's been a lot of attention paid to readiness. And I know at UT Southwestern, we feel very good right now at, at both the county health department level and at the state level that we're really acting in a much more coordinated way. There's much better communication. I think the training and the sort of funding that's going into the training is an important step. But I think we've improved significantly since then. As to whether or not there was a void at the top, it's difficult to, to, to say about that because I, it, is, it was a unique set of circumstances that could have happened in any big city and in any state. But I feel very good about the work that's going on right now. I certainly feel at UT Southwestern, as one of the Governor Perry's designated uh, centers, um, we feel very supported and feel like the chain of command is actually quite good right now. Well, I mean, I say uh, a week, uh, the week after uh, the case in Dallas, uh, somebody ended up at Medical Center Austin uh, who came from Africa, but not that part of the world, but came with symptoms similar to Ebola. Uh, when we activated the command center, placed the individual in isolation, uh, the state's response, the county's response, and the city's response was outstanding. They were all at, there at two in the morning on a Friday night or Saturday morning, two in the morning on Saturday. We were all, they were all at the emergency center. They were all giving us instructions of what we needed to do to ensure that that individual got the care that they needed and that the providers uh, that were providing that care were protected. Now, I think since that case, there's been a lot in that task force that you mentioned, there's been uh, some refinement that I think we've all benefited from. And with, as with any emergency, when an emergency takes place, I think I have found the state, the counties, and the cities they go back and refine those emergency processes. We uh, define better equipment, better protocols, and better approaches, and we learn from each one of those. And that's one of the things that, as a city manager, I can tell you, the, 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 the cooperation that we get from the emergency responses throughout the state of Texas and the counties have been always outstanding in Texas. One other piece of legislation, or, or a range of pieces of legislation I'd like to discuss, are also based out of uh, North Texas, Fort Worth, in fact. Uh, these are competing bills around Marlise's law. This is the, the woman who was pregnant who ended up on life support. Right now, state law requires doctors to maintain life-sustaining care for pregnant patients. There's one measure that would sort of repeal that. There's another that would actually make it tougher for uh, hospitals and families to, to remove life support. Uh, where do, whose decision should this be, and where do the hospitals come down on these issues? It's a tough one, I know. <laughs> the Ebola one, you guys get yeah, that right. one. <laughs> can we go back to Ebola? Well, let me, yeah. I, mean, I, I mean, I'll answer it as a father, um, not as a hospital administrator. If my daughter um, were essentially uh, gone, and we would have to keep her alive, so that she could bear a child. I think I, as a father, would say that would be wrong-headed. 
I would say that God had made a decision to take her life because she needed now to be in a different place. And that's, that's the way life works. And, uh, and we ought not to play God. And uh, because there's, there's only, and, and, and you won't know God until we're gone. Uh, we can only think we know God, we, but you won't know God until you've been, until you've left this world. So I just can't imagine that you would subject a human being uh, something to something that would uh, perhaps inflict, inflict pain or on the corpse. Uh, it just to me, it, it is beyond, beyond reason. Now, how the, how the legislation works and how all the different interest groups work that out, I know as a father what I would want, and I would uh, want other fathers to be able, and mothers to be able to express their views in a way that would not harm their child. How about as a doctor or a nurse? I think it's medicine is complicated, and so it's difficult, I think, to craft legislation to address scenarios like this because they're all different. I mean, mothers, the age of the fetus, I mean, there's a lot of things that have to be taken, the viability of, of there's just a lot of different issues. So I, as this issue plays out, I personally find it very difficult to think of how legislation is going to address this in a way that's concrete enough. Um, it's it's because it's going to be it's a difficult topic, but that's the way medicine is practiced. You have to f take all the variables in play. You have to think about all the different types of scenarios that could play out, and sometimes make very difficult decisions. Uh, and I think for the most part, that is best left um, in the hands of the medical teams, um, aided. Um, but not certainly, uh, you know, impeded by legislation. Well, pretty soon here we're going to open it up to questions, but I'd love for, for each of you just to talk for, for a couple of minutes about the innovations taking place at your hospitals that you are the most excited about, that you are the most proud of. What, what are the things that when you tell folks about them, it just blows them away? Whoever wants to go first. Sorry, I dropped this one on you. I, I have lots I would love to talk about. Um, you know, Outside of the waiver and, and what we've done, we've actually um, started several different clinics. We've done different urgent care settings. We've actually started a pediatric urgent care center. Um, and really the goal outside of just saying, oh, we're gonna open a new clinic is realize that the most expensive place for people to, to access care is the emergency room. So opening up different avenues for patients to seek that care um, is, is something that, that we really look for. So we're very proud of those that we've opened. We've opened four so far. Um, we actually, on, on top of that, have started and, and have recruited two specialists into El Paso, which, again, very different from the rest of Texas, uh, maternal fetal medicine that deal with high-risk pregnancies. Um, and so in our city, we only have three, and we've recruited two of those in and have started those clinics um, so we can work with moms that are high risk. And then outside of that, the only other thing I will tell you that we're very proud of, uh, because we, we very much feel that our roots go into the community, and uh, we are the oldest hospital system in El Paso, and, and I was actually born at the hospital I run. Um, but we, we have started and, and do a lot of community-based um, education that goes outside of just being healthcare but even to the point where we've started work with our local school districts um, and have a huge community garden uh, that is planted and developed by those students and, and starting to do something different and looking at health and their connection to the well-being of their community. Um, I would start by saying that these are really exciting times for us in, in the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas, probably similar to those here in Austin. 
Um, the Rio Grande Valley, as you know, is starting a medical school. And so it has been an exciting time for our region to really see a different uh, page in where our medical community is growing really open up. And so we've had some real exciting developments in the last few year, uh, last few years, and this year especially. Um, you know, we have recruited over 24 specialists in different areas uh, in our community. We've started uh, different programs uh, to really help in women's health and different uh, diabetes. We had an innovative partnership. Some of you may have recalled South Texas is, was in the news for its diabetes epidemic. It was seen as ground zero for diabetes uh, in the country, and we really had a lot of issues to have to address. And so what we did, and one of the things that we were most proud of, there were some series of articles that ran, and it really sort of left a question. So if you read the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or all these publications around the country, and one of them really depicted uh, South Texas in not a very flattering light. There was a rather large um, you know, in, you know, individual who had some weight challenges, and, and they showed them in front of you know, this unhealthy eatery and saying what they were going to eat and left this question nationally on who was going to come and help Texas, you know, namely from the East Coast, to come help them address this epidemic. And it was something that we were so pleased that with the doctors in the medical community in South Texas and in Texas, we were able to create some partnerships. Now, we did bring global payer, we did bring some interesting players uh, from across the country. We brought uh, the Cleveland Clinic because they run the top rated uh, bariatrics program in the country, and we brought the Jocelyn Clinic, which is the oldest diabetes clinic in the country affiliated with Harvard. Uh, in a partnership, but run and operated by our hospital. We asked them to join us. They now each have clinics in our facility and have started a wonderful program. And for the first time, we were the first community to actually see a decrease in obesity in our counties. And so we've really started addressing those challenges. But I think what is really innovative is that we're starting a medical school. We started residency programs in four specialty areas from internal medicine, family medicine, obstetrics and gynecology, general surgery. We have probably about another 10 that are under development over the next five years. Uh, we have brought, uh, are in the process of bringing scientists from all over the world uh, and are working with the university to bring 24 scientists with NIH funding grants to the Rio Grande Valley to really look at diabetes and hopefully a cure uh, and have actually had some pioneering breakthroughs in diabetes that we have now some procedures that have proven and are proving uh, to be able to permanently reverse diabetic conditions. And so we're having some interesting and innovative things happening in South Texas. So from treatments and cures to research to new programs, there are exciting times at our hospital. We're happy to be part of it. Ours is the one that I mentioned earlier, the psychiatric emergency ED. And it's, it's, it's exciting because what it's forced us as, a, as an organization is to work with a, a whole host of community partners where, that you absolutely need to be able to provide the services necessary for behavioral health. 500 visits a month happen at that ED, and then we connect back out into the community about how we can provide those individuals with the kind of care that they, they need and they deserve. In addition to that, your uh, police officers and others that are kind of been used as, a, as kind of a default or, or de facto or default uh, mental health provider now are able to take those individuals to a place where they can get the care they need, access to the medicines they require, and then the outpatient services that are always needed illness. So it's an ongoing piece of work that needs to get done by the community. And I would emphasize it needs to get done by the community and not by any one institution. So we have a brand new hospital that opened five months ago. I could spend the whole entire day telling you <laughs> cool things in it. Uh, but one of my personal favorites was an idea that really arose from patients and their families. 
and it's around the idea of secure video conferencing to enhance care. So we worked with Apple and Microsoft. If you can imagine having both of those companies in the same room together, it's difficult. Um, but to develop essentially a method for you while in the hospital to build an email address list of people you might want to interact with. You send them a link via email. They click on the link in a HIPAA compliant secure platform. You basically accept them back in and they can join the conversation in the, in the, in the hospital room. And Patients told us they wanted this because they wanted to be able to connect with their primary care physicians who might be out in West Texas, El Paso, or in Austin, um, or, and also involve people in their family or friends that might not otherwise be able to visit the hospital. And so we've done that. It's been a really transformative experience to see some things that have taken place. For example, on the day that we opened, we had a cancer patient who'd received the majority of their care at MD Anderson admitted to our hospital. We had their whole team of physicians, the patient, four different family members, all in remote locations, all together, sort of collaborating and, and, and contributing to the care. We had a, a, a patient who was dying on hospice care who got to see a new grandchild that they otherwise would have never seen. So cool things like that that I really think have taken the technology that we all use every day to enhance our lives and using it to enhance medical care. Well, we're going to open it up to questions now. Um, please uh, raise a hand if you've got one, and we'll bring you a microphone. in the panel. Um, my name is Van Ord and I'm um, directing one of ten. Can you hear me or not? I'm directing one of ten. Yes, so the question is, I think most people heard it was for the ability for a, a patient, a product or an environment where patient information could be made available to hospitals so they have that information available at the time of care. We're all in favor of that. Um, it's what I always tell my uh, fellows and students is, you know, who wants, I mean, wouldn't you rather see the patient's records before you see them, right? Because it informs you in a way that you, that you, that makes the care much better. So we're all about um, helping create and embrace technologies which help us do that. That is this interoperability of medical records, electronic medical records, and being able to exchange um, information in a way that normal people can do it um, is really important. Um, these, some of these um, environments are very difficult. The, the products themselves do not lend, they're not consumer friendly. It's difficult to record and carry your own information for you. But that is where healthcare is going. And the sooner we can get there, the better care we're going to deliver. Thank you. Uh, my name is Adam Slosberg. I'm a humanitarian with Beyond Today International. Um, I want to thank you all for being here today. Um, I very much like your innovative approach uh, in bringing uh, the consumers and their families and their friends into the discussion. Uh, I think that's fantastic. Um, a couple questions. Um, one with regards to the previous panel on the ACA um, and also perhaps the Parity Act. I was curious as to how that has affected your UC bucket, your uncompensated care bucket. And then with what's been brought up here today, um, I'm curious uh, 
Also with the UC bucket, in terms of communicating and integrating with the public sector and the safety nets, if you're utilizing at all some of the still up and coming mental health peer support industry at all to facilitate that transaction and help people get back on, on their feet. Well, um, with respect to our experience with the Affordable Care Act, is that we have, we have seen the number of uninsured drop. I think the previous panel talked about uh, Texas had at one point 25% of its Texans were uninsured, 6 million people. And we've now been able to reduce that to something in the order of about 17 or 18 percent. So I think that's been very, very beneficial as people signed up through the exchanges, et cetera, to get coverage. Uh, the second thing is, is that we as healthcare systems have to think about Medicaid not as a cost. We have to think about it as how we, how we care for those individuals in a different way. And that means you've got to connect with the community providers. You've got to connect with the, the health clinics that are run by your county. Because you've got to make that, that connection is absolutely essential to keep those individuals well and keep them out of your hospital, but more importantly, to keep them at home, keep them at work, wherever it might be. Those, those are going to, now, we don't, have re, we don't get paid for that. So you've got to figure a way when you petition the state, and that's why these innovative programs are important, as to how can you get that flexibility in the Medicaid program to be able to pay for some of those services, because in the long run, Medicaid will spend less money per capita if we're able to coordinate that care in a more effective way. And us as hospitals have to think about those as individuals and not as a cost. And, uh, and I think if you do that, we'll, we'll be money ahead. I, if I can throw something else out, out at you, um, just for a point of reference, while the, our safety net hospitals are so important in the state and, and we need to do everything we can to protect those hospitals, uh, realize the, the importance that all the other facilities within the community provide. So in El Paso, we do have our hospital district and, uh, and our community hospital, but 70% of all the Medicaid and uninsured care in El Paso is provided in a private hospital. It isn't taken care of in the safety net. So those other facilities and the resources that they bring to bear in the communities is very important. Just one last issue I would add that's important to your question and why the 1115 waiver is so important. Um, our hospital partnered with the 1115 waiver and with our programs throughout the county. So we don't have a public hospital district in Hidalgo County, but what we did do was we used our 1115 waiver, not the uncompensated care, but to use those funding resources. We created a partnership with the Hidalgo County Indigent Care Program. We also created a partnership with our charitable care clinic program in the county known as Hope Clinic. And then our residency programs are providing uh, additional services that are free of charge to the community, not for that have programs for charitable care programs so they can be seen and partner with the community. Because sometimes you have a lot of primary care and FQHCs, but then when you have that specialty access, that's not there. And so by utilizing graduate medical education to fill the gap in specialists, it has helped expand those programs. And so while it wasn't under the UC bucket, there has been a huge increase in uncompensated care availability in our community through the 1115 waiver DISRUP program. So they can work in partnership and create new access, even in the non-traditional census. Hi, good day. My name's Alexander. I'm with uh, Evolve Integrative Care, located here in Austin. Um, great topic, thanks a lot, guys. Great input. My question is to the panels, everyone. Um, how does the preventative business model, medical model, fit inside of you guys' hospital? What sort of business model does your hospital have? And if it is, is it 
great in preventative and in the community? And how will that holistically, how holistically will your organization adjust to the wave that the, the United States is going so far as preventative care is uh, into your, your organizations? So to be candid right now, um, the prevention model really doesn't help us um, because we're still in many ways paid on volume, but that's changing. And so more and more we're going to be paid and, and sort of recognized for the way we care for populations of people. And that's where the prevention piece is going to be important because when we're responsible for a group of patients as opposed to just a group of patient encounters, the business model definitely changes. I, I'm sure that your markets are similar, but we're already seeing that in, in Dallas where so many companies are self-insured. They're not just interested in looking at the hospital piece of what we're providing. They want to see what we're, how we're taking care of their employees and their families. That's a good change for medicine. Right now, the business model doesn't really um, drive in, in sync with it, but it's headed the right direction. One, the one thing I would just add real quickly, and that one of the things that we are doing, I think preventative medicine is here to stay. It's not there yet and we don't get reimbursed, but there is a lot of programs that we're doing. Um, one of the things that our hospital is sponsoring is a preventative medicine residency program. So the fact there's an expanding field of a physician who would be branded just in preventative medicine is something that we're working very closely with. And also long-term issues for diabetes is something that we've done a lot of education and outreach. So while right now preventative medicine is largely focused on education, outreach programs that I think every hospital up here has panels and programs where we engage the community. We do free screenings, free testing, free education. We now have preventative clinics. Um, the real availability of where that medicine is going to go is an open field. And so I think it's a challenge to anyone who can really make it there. And programs like the Preventative Medicine Residency Program are opening those fields. Um, but it's interesting where it's going to go. Uh, right now, it's based basically a lot of uh, education and outreach and screening. But I think there's a, a new industry that is being designed as we speak to help address those issues and will be interesting where all of us will go. Hi, I'm Maria Talamo. I'm a registered nurse and a professional health care administrator. One of the issues that we've struggled with is that our system is very siloed, especially um, the silos that separate neurology, physical health, um, psychiatric services, addictions treatment services. How have you broken down some of the silos and worked with persons with addictions, substance use disorder, process addictions in your system as you've encountered them, whether it's in your trauma unit, in your emergency department, in your outpatient clinics? How have you broken down some of those silos and what is really encouraging you for the future? One, I, mean, I, I mean, just briefly, one of the things we've done is we've created uh, insurance and population health inside an insurance product so that in effect when you take risk you've, you're incented as part of that business model that, that uh, was mentioned earlier by Dr. Warner is that that business model begins to change for us because now you're holding the risk of how you care for that individual so you have to bring those pieces together. That's one way but that's not the only way. They're the Accountable Care Act try to address other ways of doing that but that's how we've at least yeah, I think the best way to break down silos in medicine, and you referenced some very prominent ones, is to put people in the same silo. So for us, uh, what we've done is create multidisciplinary clinics where you get those providers working together. Um, that lets them collaborate, innovate together. There's nothing like adjacency to create efficiencies. And I think uh, getting people to sort of be together more, think together more, really is the key to improving health. 